Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming out on a rainy day to join us. I'm Susan Braun, the Executive Director of Commonweal, and I'm happy to have you here with us for the fourth now in our series of conversations about the end of life. And I will introduce Steve to you in a few moments, but want to give you an idea of how the day will run or the afternoon will run. Steve will talk to us for a, a bit, and then we will have a dialogue between the two of us and questions and answers from all of you. Before we get started, though, a couple of things. I want to introduce Michael Lerner, who's going to probably talk to you at the end, but who's in the back, who is not only the founder of Commonweal, but also the brains and the brawn behind the uh, new school, um, does, does a lot of the thinking about it and the heavy lifting to make it all work as well. Um, and we will pass a hat around as well. It's very important to us to be able to keep these uh, events free to the public. And so to the extent that you can donate and help us make these um, new school events continue, we would be very grateful. All right, so let me tell you a bit about Steve. I'm going to read to you some of what Steve has provided and then talk to you about him. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, Steve Heilig is Director of Public Health and Education for both the San Francisco Medical Society and for Commonweal's Collaborative on Health and the Environment, or CHE. He is also the co-editor of the Cambridge Quarterly on Healthcare Ethics and is a clinical ethicist at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. He's a trained hospice worker and has been a volunteer with and then the director of the Zen Hospice Project. He's a longtime book critic for the San Francisco Chronicle and for other publications and has authored more than 400 pieces on a wide range of medical, public health, ecological, literary, and other topics. And perhaps most important to the Bolinas crowd here, Steve has for the past decade or so does that mean 20 years? <laughs> no. Okay. Then the temporary, this is his title, the temporary rotating junior editor of the Wednesday Bolinas Hearsay News. <laughs> so, important that you know that if you don't like the Wednesday issue, more likely you do. And now you know why. Um, Steve is, is a wonderful colleague for us here at Commonweal and brings a great deal of wisdom and compassion to our work as well as to his work and seems to be someone who people come to both personally and professionally for advice and for his understanding of the world, which I think far exceeds his, his years here. And so I welcome you, Steve, and look forward to hearing what you have to share with us. Thank you, Susan. I don't really know. I'd prefer to sit, but I don't know. With all these people, you can't see or hear, although there are a couple, two, three more seats up here if somebody wanted to come up. It's up to you. Um, so when we were talking some six months ago or so about starting this series, I just innocently agreed to do one without really thinking about what I was going to do. And uh, we've had some very uh, renowned people, uh, very wise people coming to talk about various issues. And we have one more, of course, my former mentor, trainer, 
the founder of the Zen Hospice, is going to be here next month, Frank Ostaseski, and I very highly recommend the guy is a guru in this field, where I'm just you know somebody who mucks around and, and so forth. Um, and, and what I found was is that I was really pretty nervous about doing this, partly because I knew there were going to be a bunch of friends here. It turns out to be true, and even some people who are my bosses, you know, at Commonweal, and the the real Wednesday editor of the Hearsay is here. It's it's very intimidating, you know. The Friday editors are here. It's all. So, and, and then I thought back about 15 years ago, there was a roper poll of Americans, and the question was, what scares you the most in life? And the three top things were death, public speaking, and talking about death. So, So I commend you all for showing up on a, on a rainy day, especially. That's probably why you're here. There's nothing else to do out there on the beautiful. So, um, but thank you seriously for showing up. I mean, this is something we, you know, I've been putting on forums of various kind for professionals, for doctors and nurses and all sorts of people. And people used to, this is going back actually to the 80s. People would come and we'd always be, you know, it was often the converted, people who were working in the field. And we were wondering why more people weren't coming to these things. And, you know, it's actually, I'm convinced over time that until you really experience something, whether it's in your own life or just something that makes you open to talking about this topic and this realm, that it's actually against our nature. You know, our, our whole thing is to deny death, really, and to want to live and to pretend like it's... it's something that's not going to happen. So, you know, that's changing over time, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but um, it's just heartening to see a lot of people here. And um, I was asked, am I going to talk about how to delay death and be immortal? And, <laughs> and I am actually going to say that, but not till the end, so you have to stay until for the whole thing. <laughs> um, and I was also asked to say a little more about why, you know, why am I here, really? What, how did I get to this? I mean, I never set out to be any kind of expert on death and dying. I don't think anybody does in the beginning, really. And I actually trained in epidemiology and public health, and then I was overseas for some years, and then I showed up uh, in San Francisco and at Berkeley to do a doctorate and so forth, and that was the mid-'80s in San Francisco. And, of course, that was the peak, the, the kind of explosion of the HIV epidemic. And I needed a job. <laughs> and uh, I took a job which was basically coordinating, uh, to a large extent, San Francisco's response between the health department, the medical association, and the university. And it was one of these things that was out of tragedy and terror became, for me, an extremely fortunate thing because all I was able to learn and all the people I was able to meet. And I got basically a hall pass to go anywhere I wanted and talk to anybody. I could go to any classes in the medical school at UCSF and in public health, and I just was immersed in learning. And I also just learned a lot. I'm a Southern California beach boy, which is kind of a, for lack of a better term, it's kind of a macho, uh, even you know, homophobic culture. Surfing culture is famous for that. And I learned a lot. And part of what we were trying to do in the public health uh, world was figure out what was going on. There was no name for the disease yet. We didn't know how it was transmitted. Everybody's freaked out. What's going on? 
But the other side, once as that was being learned, was of course there were a lot of people dying. And I felt somehow obligated to, you know, rather than just doing all this policy work, educational work, a lot of writing that was mentioned, was to really get involved, get, you know, hands on. So there's an organization still going very different now called the Shanti Project, which trained people to take care of people both practically and emotionally. So I got involved with that. I did that training first, worked with them. Being compulsive, I ended up on their board eventually and, and so forth, was an interim director. And then some years after that, as I was fading out of that, I was run over by a truck downtown San Francisco, um, a sort of near-death experience, not, not that dramatic, but sort of. Um, and when I got back to my office some days later, there was an invitation from Frank Ostaseski, he had we'd met before, to undergo the Zen hospice training, which was a very intense week, you know, whole weekends, you go every night. And uh, so I did that and worked there for years as a volunteer and uh, being compulsive, ended up on the board and then the director for a while. <laughs> and Frank left and now it's off doing its, its own thing still and still going. But um, part of the, of course, the HIV epidemic related to drug abuse too and I'd always uh, I ended up living in the hate I still have a place there and worked at the hate clinic uh, attached myself to the founder right up here one. attached myself to the founder Dr. David Smith who's still a dear friend and a mentor in addiction medicine and went to his classes ended up teaching there in fact in addiction issues as well so I'll tell you a little story that brings a lot of us together uh, one of the things, if you work at a free clinic, one of the biggest problems often is getting much more intensive services for people, diagnostic, surgical, etc. You do primary care, but it's very hard sometimes to get people what they really need if they need something that's much more intensive and expensive. And the hate clinic is right down the hill from UCSF Medical Center. So a dear friend of mine who just died two years ago, uh, Bill Ashley, Dr. Bill Ashley, he was actually chief of medicine up there for a while. One of my mentors, too, very interested in the medical ethics field, started the ethics committee at UCSF. And uh, he was our in, because I could call him and say, I've got somebody that needs to see somebody for much more up at UC. And if he took them, being chief, then they were in. They had it made. They could get anything, right? But I, he said, you know, please, not more than like one a day. You know, these are all uh, uninsured, often uh, addicts, and so forth. But we had a very nice gentleman in his 40s, who was a longtime alcoholic and uh, had, was having some severe GI gastrointestinal problems, as is often the case for heavy drinkers. And it was more than, it, it just figuring out what was going on was more than what could be done at the free clinic. And this was a guy who had lost his job, his marriage, he had a couple kids due to his drinking. He was basically uh, a street person for some time. And he had been... Uh, like a social worker and an attorney both and just you know it was a sad story because he was really struggling with this and he'd lost everything like I say pretty much but he hadn't given up and so I called Bill this one of these afternoons I said I've got somebody we need you to see um, and he said well bring him up it's always the end of the day kind of thing 530 you know so I walked this guy up knowing that there were some bars and some uh, liquor stores on the way between there and he might not make it if I sent him on his own. And I walked him up there and came into Bill's office, which was, the, it's uh, 350 Parnassus, you know, this is up there on the hill looking out, 
So I can remember the office, 710, which was the top floor with the corner looking out over the whole bay. You can see Bellinas. I mean, it's, Bill had a very fancy practice. A lot of very wealthy people came to see him, and he was very good, but he'd see anybody. And um, so I took this guy in, and there was one distinguished gentleman sitting there waiting for his appointment. And the secretary said, well, he'll have to go after this fellow. I said, of course, you know, we'll wait. I was worried that he might leave, you know, too. So I sat there for a while. And, these two guys started talking a little bit, and then finally Bill came, you know, he, the other patient went in, and I uh, said, okay, you can stay and go. So I left, and I would get a follow-up call often, you know, uh, from Dr. Atchley and say, so what happened? You know, what was, did you do? And he said, well, that was fascinating. He said, your, uh, your patient came in, and after I'd seen, I said, well, yeah, it was interesting because those two guys were talking. And he says, well, that, the, my existing patient is the chairman of the board of blank, blank, bank, one of the biggest in the world. And he has his own chauffeur, which was sitting outside to drive him around and everything. And having a, a chauffeur is actually a big risk factor for being an alcoholic because what often happens is you get caught with a DUI. And if you have a chauffeur, you never get caught. Right? So this guy got driven around. But he said, your, your patient came in and said, do you know the guy in front of me is a drunk, is an alcoholic? And, and Bill actually said, you know, I'd never, I knew that, but I never really wanted to face it because he's a huge donor to the hospital. He's a, a, a patient of many years, and he's a big scary guy, and he's not very nice. He's not warm and fuzzy, and you don't, you know, you don't get warm, you don't get to the, be the chairman of the board by being warm and fuzzy. So, I said, okay, well, yeah. What, what about so and so, the patient? And he said, well, he was very interesting too because he uh, broke down. We were talking. I spent an hour and a half in there with him talking, and it turns out uh, he is a closeted gay man who had this family who now has HIV, and he's farther along than we thought, you know, really. And he, you know, at this point, we didn't have the meds and the uh, ways to delay this or to arrest the development of the disease, it was still largely a fatal diagnosis. And he said, and you know, the chairman guy has a fatal diagnosis too. He didn't tell me what it was, you know, but he said, but yes, he's, he's a drinker. And so I confronted him for the first time. And so these two guys, and I said, all right, so why don't you just keep me up on what's going on? So I'm going to come back to that story towards the end. No? You don't want to know anymore? <laughs> you want me to warn you and you can leave and then I'll tell you. <laughs> so Neil, who's my chauffeur today actually, uh, will you remind me <laughs> if I forget? So these two, what was going on in those years was very interesting because it was the resurgence of an infectious, which didn't really matter so much for this purpose, but a fatal disease that a lot of people hadn't dealt with in a long time. And there was a famous quote from a former, you know, dean of infectious medicine somewhere who said in like the 1930s, the era of infectious diseases is over. We fixed it. We got antibiotics now. So when HIV came back, it kind of just threw that all out the window and everybody was scrambling. And what was happening in the, um, in the gay community in San Francisco was a lot of people trying to figure out how to deal with this on their own because they would go to their doctors and say, I have a fatal disease, are you going to help me out? Are you going to, you know, if I get to a point where I can't do anything to help me out? Most of the doctors freaked out and said, uh, you know, or a lot of them said, this is illegal, unethical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what was formed in there was a lot of people figuring out what they could do to help each other out of this life if they needed to. It became 
there had already been the Hemlock Society, which was doing what you might call assisted dying, pro-choice work at the end of life. But they would come to our group, our coordinating group, and say, we want to know medicines, doses, dosage, et cetera, et cetera, procedures, you know. And it was very difficult because, on the one hand, if you talk to almost anybody privately, they would say, this is a human right, you know. Yeah. But on the other hand, we're really worried about it being made public, uh, even becoming legal because there might be economic pressure to do it, et cetera, et cetera. You've probably heard a lot of these arguments through the years. But what evolved at that time, interestingly enough, was a kind of de facto way to deal with it. Now, I brought some handouts that are out there on the counter um, and talk about this in one of them. These are all, or mostly things that I've written through the years that I thought might be interesting about today's topic. And what really happened there was a lot of people having code words almost or being able to talk to their doctor and say, well, you've got me on morphine already. We've got a line in even maybe, you know, it's an intravenous line and everything, and I want this much dosage. And the doctor would say, well, that's going to kill you. And they'd say, well, you know, you said it, not me, but thank you for acknowledging that. And um, it became this kind of underground thing that was a process that then evolved over the years with various court cases into something which became actually, and it's talked about there, I think in there's, there's a handout called A Clear Mind Isn't All It's Cracked Up To Be, basically, um, which is written, for, written for, by invitation from a Buddhist journal years ago. And the, there were a couple of things. The AMA came out on a, with a statement on a case that said, interesting enough, you know, if you give enough meds to a patient and it, kills them, if you do it without the intent of killing them but of making them more comfortable, that's fine, that's ethical. If you do it with the intent of killing them, then you're in big trouble. Maybe even you know, legal in terms of not just with your license but maybe in terms of court procedures. And not much later, the Supreme Court said basically the same thing in another case. So the whole... In the whole point of it became you could have two patients in two rooms. One, you gave them the exact same dosage, and, this, and they died, and it's because they were begging you to do it, get them out of this life. In the other room, you gave them that dosage, but it's because they were in pain. There was no talk about wanting to die, but they died because you wanted to ease them out, and they were asking. And so in one room, you're a criminal. In the other room, you're an ethical physician. It's something I called Hippocratic hypocrisy. I mean, it's basically just about what saying what you, you know, not really saying what's going on, but also um, it was the whole question became one of intent, you know, which I thought was very interesting because it goes in line with some, with a lot of other teachings, including in Buddhism and so forth, that intent is very important. Even if you have the same result the, at the end, what was most important and what your intention was. And it became, you know, that became the truth with respect to both the law and the ethical codes. The AMA, for whatever problems people have with it, publishes a, a journal about this. That, this is my red journal. This is the Cambridge Quarterly that was referred to, but it's just known as the Red Journal. It's one of about half a dozen of the uh, kind of leading ethics journals. But they publish a book like this, thicker now, of ethical codes, which is actually really good and, and kind of a standard in a lot of ways for people on all sorts of topics. So one of the other issues that comes up in this whole debate is the debate about pain, treatment of pain. And this is another one that has been really bedeviled people for many years. If you really think about it, pain is often is probably the most common reason somebody first 
would go to a physician through the years. And until not that long ago, treatment of it was not that great. Um, there were just not that many options. Some people would say, and I might agree, maybe two things, of all discoveries of humankind, maybe the opium, the, the proper use of the opium poppy, maybe number one. Uh, when you look back at ancient history, they, they've found skulls of, uh, you know, our ancestors from way back bashed in all over. And one of the dominant, or prominent theories, I'm an archaeologist and so forth, is that this is people killing themselves because even just a toothache that couldn't be fixed. And you can imagine, if you ever had a really bad toothache and living with that untreated forever, you might not want to live, you know, after trying to knock it out. So over the years, in the last century really, um, pain relief got better. And over the last decade, or 15 years in particular, it's gotten a lot better than it was. And interestingly enough, a few years ago, there was the first case where a doctor was prosecuted for under-treatment of pain. And the doctor lost because he had under-treated the pain. And the result of that, a big, huge political compromise in the state here, was that almost every physician in California had to take a, basically a day long, a day's worth of pain education. And one thing you never do is make a doctor who's already graduated take a particular course. They hate it. They really, you know, they think they know stuff already. It tends to be the case. And there's only, other than CPR, there isn't really anything you have to take unless you're doing boards exams or something like that. But other than a few, like the pathologists, people who don't see living patients in particular, everybody else had to do it. And it was very interesting because most of them were drag kicking and screaming into this. But if you talk to a lot of them afterwards, the result often when they came out was, wow, I didn't know. I didn't know that there were all these new options, better meds, better dosages, much more knowledge, even complementary um, approaches that have become more accepted. And so there's, a, there's the, I'll try to give you a number of practical messages through this. There's one is if you have pain and you have a doctor and you feel it's undertreated, you have to be a little aggressive about it in a way and say, well, do you know, have you been, you know, is, is there a specialist around, there are pain specialists now, and you get towards end of life, the palliative care people, and we're gonna talk a little more about that, they're just much better than they used to be, but there are still a fair number of physicians and others who are still not quite up to speed on this. So, I'm not saying that all pain is treatable, but a lot more is treatable than is being treated. There's a landmark study in the JAMA, Journal of the AMA, uh, 1995 now, so, or no, uh, yeah, 1995, over 15 years. And they went looking at, it was a long-term, a lot of uh, people, thousands of patients involved, they went looking at end-of-life care, including pain treatment. It was called the START study. And they looked at interventions getting much more, looking at how people were treated in the best places, in, intern in intensive care units, and just in the community, wherever. And the general conclusion, the one that got all the attention, was that about 50% of all the patients had undertreated pain. Um, and that the, one of the common estimates is that somewhere on the order of 3 to 5% of patients with pain have something that is truly not treatable, that is intolerable. Those are the, among the groups that you'll find getting back into the assisted dying, in particular, into asking to be relieved of that in some way. In the study? Yeah. 50. But that's, you know, it's a broad estimate, it depends. They were looking at an intervention even where they had uh, trained nurses coming in and assessing this and working with people. And 
even then. There were just a lot of issues involved. Now, a couple of things to say about the undertreatment of pain that are important to know is we have obviously a huge chronic epidemic of abuse of pain meds in this country. And particularly since OxyContin has come in and so forth, it's a real problem. And so this lurks behind every doctor's head when they're talking to people about pain and thinking about prescribing. Because the authorities that prosecute this are very, you know, they're fairly aggressive about it, trying to find people who are selling meds, diverting meds, and so forth. So people do get into trouble, sometimes legitimately, and some very otherwise good physicians have gotten in trouble by what is known as drug-seeking patients. So the fear of addiction and of you even leading slowly the patient into addiction by legitimately trying to treat them and then they become really into it, it's a big problem. And so that's a huge factor in the undertreatment. People don't want to give away too much. And the other, another one is what I was talking about just a minute ago is that when you get into the end stages of life, People are really afraid about, doctors I'm saying, are really afraid about giving too much and pushing somebody over the edge when they're not really sure that's the right thing to do. And if the, again, if it's done in the right way with the patients called terminal sedation now is the way it's done in hospitals and uh, intensive care units, you can give somebody enough pain and we have these discussions all the time on the ethics consult service, excuse me, we're on call for patients and physicians who have these kind of questions. They've got a patient in the intensive care unit or in some other setting and they're really worried about this kind of issue. They'll call, I would say four times out of five, maybe nine times out of ten, the cases that we're called on are end-of-life issues where people are struggling with this. They may not have a surrogate decision maker designated to tell them what to do. So they're trying to figure this out and we just come in and try to clarify the questions. We don't make the decision for the doctors but we help them um, find out exactly what the issues are. And if there is a conflict between, say, family members, we try to do conflict resolution. Um, and that's what the ethics committees are for. And I, for a long time now, every hospital over a certain size, the tiny ones rural don't have to, but almost every hospital has to have an ethics committee or something similar to it. So there's another practical piece of advice for you. If you're in a hospital or if somebody you care for or love is in a hospital and you think there's something, a problem with treatment, not just a mean person, <laughs> but if you think there's an issue going on that you're not getting uh, the right answers, that you can't decide what the patient really wants, if your family is arguing, you can ask for it. It's a right now. You can ask for an ethics consult um, at a hospital. You can say, do you have an ethics committee or somebody on call that we can talk to? It can be there's all sorts of people on these. They're multidisciplinary. There's doctors, nurses, social workers, clergy. And then, excuse me, if they're in a place where they have it, they'll have somebody, an ethicist like, like me or something like that. So um, that is a resource that's available without charge to patients. And some hospitals are not so good at it. Some are better, you know. But... Um, the big kind of M word in this is money, too, right? Um, the problem with a lot of uh, services in healthcare, as you know, I think, is that there's often not very good coverage of it. And some of these uh, hospital services that I'm talking about, some of the community services, you know, um, people are just not 
reimbursed very well for them. So lurking behind a lot of this is often the question of when you're towards the end of life, you're paying money for services. You know, what's happened over time is that um, you know, a lot of people are now, it's going back to people dying outside of hospitals and out of home in long-term care facilities and so forth. And those often are not cheap. So one of the toughest questions we get is when somebody says, I want to die now because I don't want all the money that's left, whatever I have left, going to facilities and doctors and nurses instead of to my family or my survivors. That's not one I often, we, you know, we have an answer for. But I'll, t I'll tell you, my uh, brother-in-law in Santa Barbara is an internist and a geriatrician, a lot of very uh, elderly patients. And I asked him, what are the three most important secrets? What are, you know, you've been doing this 25 years. What are the three secrets to a long and healthy life, to staying healthy through your old age? And it was interesting. First thing was, is he hadn't really thought about it much like that. He said, oh, I'm going to have to think about that. So I think it was the next morning. I was staying down there. I think he said, okay, I come up with the three things. One is, eat your oatmeal. Sec second one is, keep walking, keep moving. So really the first two are about keep moving because the first one is about, you know, keep, you know, is about fiber, right? It's about fiber, which is very important as we're finding out more and more and more. And he says, and the third one, the only I can think of is have a lot of money, you know? So, and that one was not something you can necessarily do a lot about, right? Um, so, you know, that's about access to services and, and, and everything else. And, you know, what we have happening now, of course, is a, uh, a real attempt uh, that we've had to reform the system in a way that takes away some of those worries. And nobody at this point knows what, how it's going to turn out. Um, even putting aside all of the sabotage that's going on, both legally and politically, the big problem in that is giving everybody access to care, which obviously we all favor, uh, I believe anyway, um, presupposes that you have the resources to provide that care, which in this country, I'm not sure we do anymore. Um, if you look at both the trends in the amount of doctors and services out there, that is not looking good for an aging population, which we are, and just in terms of money. I don't know how we're going to put 30 million more people onto Medicaid and Medi-Cal in this state uh, without the resources to pay for that and the doctors to take care of them. So that's, you know, we're, we're in for a very interesting time over the next few years and next 20 years in terms of how that's going to evolve. But one of the great things about it is it is geared towards, and Medicare and Medicaid are, it has a lot of the, the policy that was, uh, healthcare reform that was put into place, it has a lot in it that would uh, improve care at end of life um, if implemented. Right, So whether that's going to happen, I don't know. Now, one of the interesting things about that is the ethics consult service and committee that I serve on now at California Pacific and the one I used to be on at UC and San Francisco General Hospital, some people tried to rename those during that, that, uh, that last campaign, call them death panels. Because that's basically what they were trying to allude to, what we do, you know, often. Because what often does happen when we're called in is after we're called in, care is terminated in some way. 
And this is done in a very, to my uh, long experience, I may have a conflict of interest, but I've seen it from all sides. It's done in a very humane, considered, ethical way. But the end result is, again, somebody's care being terminated at their request or their family's request. And again, when we go in, four times out of five, the, the way it happens is I listen to the entire case presentation and then ask some questions. And my first question is often, why isn't this patient on hospice care? You've got somebody in a hospital that they're trying to fix still. And in this country, the average length of stay in a hospice is about two weeks, or in hospice care services. In Europe, Japan, Australia, most of the West, other Western countries, it's two months. So um, what that to me means is that we're keeping them out of hospice much too long often in this country while we're trying to fix things that can't be fixed. Now, it's very hard to look back in retrospect and often and say, well, we should have done this then. But by the time they call in, I'm usually saying, why isn't this patient in a hospice setting at this point? And everybody looks at each other. There's usually silent for a few minutes. There's the doctors and nurses. They say, well, we were thinking we could maybe do this procedure on here and we could switch this around and all that. And usually you're saying, well, why? Do you think it's really going to work? Well, you know, we have to try, you know. And what has happened over time, I mean, with, with patients, say, with cancer of different kinds, you can localize, you know, you're, you've got a targeted treatment often. But what we've evolved over time, what used to be called old age, is now called multi-system organ failure. <laughs> it's, it's basically the term that came up when you asked, well, what is this patient's biggest problem? Well, everything's melting down, basically. Multi-system organ failure. Well, that you, you know, you say, well, if that's really there, you're not going to fix it, right? And then you send them to the hospice. And when I used to get the patient's intake at the hospice, uh, the Zen hospice, it was often like, you know, this patient is being just sent here. that We can't really help them come to a much more uh, good death because it's too late, really. They're too far gone already. And that is slowly changing by, you know, hospice length of stay is going up in some areas finally. But it's still a long way to go in this country to make that better. Um, Caregiving itself, interesting, interesting thing. All of us, at some or most of us, you've got your parents, you've got other people in the family, you have loved ones, you end up in a role by default of being a caregiver of some kind. And it's a very, you know, very human and very complicated role to take. Um, there are places now that can help you with some practical training on how to take care of people. The Zen hospice one was amazing. It went from everything from how best to change somebody's bedding with them still in the bed because you couldn't move them to some really out there, you know, Buddhist uh, stuff that was really useful, you know. Um, but I'll say one thing about this that I thought was one of the memories. Once I became one of the directors and, and basically a shift coordinator at the Zen hospice was screening volunteers. They were literally, the, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's a, the Zen hospice itself is down on Page Street in the city. It's a, right a kitty corner from the Zen center itself, the big giant building on the corner, where a lot of people go to live actually to become Zen students, serious Zen students. And what I found was is that the Zen students who were living at the Zen center, even though they were just kitty corner and it was really convenient, they were the worst caregivers we had. <laughs> Because they were working on their own stuff so hard. Oops. <laughs> One of them heard me. No. 
I actually ended up rejecting a number of them and said, why don't you come back in a year when you've become a little more stabilized? Because I've actu I actually had to remove serious Zen people, Buddhists, etc., from rooms because they were putting their own stuff on the patients. Reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead to somebody who was not really that into hearing about the flying skulls and whatever, you know. <laughs> Um, which, you know, I mean, you might know about that book, Timothy Leary and those in the early 60s, they wrote about this as a very useful tool for some people to, to read and, and be involved with. But one of the things I did, here's another little tip, if you're taking care of somebody and there's a, people coming to visit, is I would tell each patient, if you're ever, you know, and patients don't want to be mean to their, uh, you know, visitors, but said, if you've ever had enough of somebody, you want them to leave, and you don't want to say to So wiggle both your toes like this, and I'll look, and then I will find a reason to get them out of there. We have to do something. You know, we have to change something here, you know. Because one very sweet older gentleman one time was when somebody was reading some sutra to him that he didn't want to hear and getting very into it. And I remember this guy. He was almost gone. He was, you know, sorry there. He reached over and patted her hand. He said, there, there, let's not overdo this. <laughs> So, and I think he was actually the one who taught me about how to, you know, he said, let's, let's develop a signal where you can, you know, I don't want to insult my family, for example, you know. But there are now training programs, as I said. There are uh, various things in, and that will help people in practical senses on how to take care of people who are no longer really able to do things for themselves. Um, so when you get towards you know, the end, and people are, you know, actually moving into the active phase of dying. It's very interesting because some years ago at a big medical meeting, there was a kind of a informal poll of, and there was all, you know, 250 physicians of all specialties, said, how many patients have you actually been with when they died? It was very small for most of them because they're handed over, hospice, nurses, home, Etc. And I was thinking, God, you know, this is 10 years ago or something. And I had, you know, I don't know, but probably 50 or so like that at that point, you know. And you're trying to figure out what are the commonalities. And there is, there's a lot of literature, and some of it goes back for many years. But um, it's a very um, intimate and challenging moment to actually be there. There are people who get hooked on it. We used to call them the, the death junkies, you know, who wanted to be there at that moment, you know. Um, but most people, it's, it tends to be, a, there's, a, there's a tough period coming up to it. And this is, I'm just generalizing from my experience. There's a tough period where people are having uh, maybe some difficulty breathing. They're not really conscious enough to be experiencing, at least to, as far as I can tell, or many people could tell, a lot of pain anymore if they're properly, take, properly taken care of. And then it tends to be a quiet time. And often, this is very interesting, I've seen this a lot, there's a moment somewhere within 24 hours before death where somebody becomes very lucid again. And it's a very st striking they will come, people will come back to where they were months before and remember who everybody is and have something to say and then check out, you know. Um, I've never seen a good explanation for this. 
you know, why this happens. But enough people who have spent a lot of time with dying people have seen it happen that, I mean, it does. It happened four months ago with my mother, actually. Um, and I'd seen it enough in the, there's a story, one of the handouts there from the hospice, uh, the Zen hospice. And this was a patient, a guy who was a very flamboyant gay man who challenged everybody and did it on purpose, like to push people's buttons, caused all sorts of trouble, you know. Um, it's just who he was. And I just gave it right back to him. You know, I would, I just, you know, I like this guy and I, I just, you know, gave him as much trouble as he gave me, I guess, in a way. I said, no, no, forget it, you know, whatever. And he, I happened to be, it was just pure chance and, and even luck. The night he died, I happened to stop by there because I knew he was going soon and I was going to go by and say goodbye. He hadn't been conscious in 48 hours or so. But we had him in a kind of sitting position, and I sat down next to him, and he kind of slumped over with his head on my shoulder. And I was like, okay, he's, you know. And he had what is called chain stokes breathing that often happens. People get into a very deep rhythmic breathing pattern somewhat before, um, which is a, a, you know, it's a normal thing, but it, it um, can be disturbing to a lot of people. It seems like a gasping for breath, and it can be. But often it's, you know, they aren't really experiencing a lot of distress, from it, at least that you can tell. And anyway, he was doing a bit of that, but then he calmed down, and all of a sudden, I realized I looked, he was looking at me. And he said, thank you for the respect and for all the good times. <laughs> it was like a joke. And you know, I just said, of course. And I you know, hung out for a while later. I had to go, and he died like at 4 or 5 that morning, you know, in the night. So you never know what people are going you know, to come back, and it's... it's um, it's, it's one of the mysteries, I think, still of this, is that, that last moment which can come. I'm not saying it always does, and it may even be a minority, but it is common. Um, so there's a lot of uh, talk about what happens when somebody dies. A lot of reports from near-death experiences, too, that have been written about. And I don't know if you remember, I first read about this. It was in the 70s. There was a very famous book called... Uh, Life After Life, I believe, written by a doctor. And he had done all these uh, interviews with patients who had had a near-death experience from whatever, an accident, uh, on, the, on an operating table during surgery. And he tried to delineate the commonalities, which were often about a dark tunnel you're going through, a fairly traumatic experience. There's light out there. If, once you get out to the light, there are beings or at least a presence of some kind that you feel very taken care of and you've arrived and things are going to be okay. And he, it was a, a bestseller, really, and it got a lot of uh, press, et cetera. And turned, you know, behind it, it turned out the author, who was a physician, was a devout Christian. So you know, the interpretation leaned towards Christianity, finding heaven and all that, which is fine. It also, though, made a lot of people nervous to say, what if I don't get this experience? Am I going the other way? You know, what is, what is wrong here? Um, on a more kind of scientific level, a lot of people looked at it and said, well, this could be related to the shutting down of the brain, to oxygen starvation. Um, you can get that experience with other, you know, by having oxygen starvation and so forth in some ways. People have had this kind of experience. Carl Sagan, the great uh, science writer um, and journalist and astronomer, um, his theory, he wrote a very interesting, his theory was that it was in fact the shutting down of the brain and that 
the brain being like an onion in a sense that you start with birth and you pile on memories, as you shut down, you're going back and you're reliving your birth. You're coming out of the birth canal, you're into the light, and you are coddled by people and everything feels better, even though it's been traumatic. And his, his scientific question then was, well, we should do a study on people who were born cesarean and see what happens if it's, <laughs> if it's different, you know, which would include me, so I might not have that experience. But I, f I found his article, it's in one of his books of essays, I found it fairly, uh, you know, convincing in that way. Um, so what happens after? <laughs> um, you know, obviously, I don't have that answer. I mean, there's a, a dearth of people who have come back to tell us what, it, what, the, what they experienced uh, afterwards. But there are, of course, many theories about what goes on. And um, for me, you know, a lot of the, uh, the teachings from Buddhism have been very helpful. I happened to go and enter that through the Zen hospice. So I found that they're looking, frankly, at death being one of the central teachings is being aware of mortality and finite, you know, time that you have on this, in this life anyway, no matter what you think about what happens afterwards. And actually, the Buddha, to his great credit, I think, when somebody asked him what happens afterwards, and he said, just pay attention to now. You know, <laughs> you know look at this tree. You know. um, it's, that's a bigger question you know, than we need to deal with. But you know, a lot of people want to know. And what I found was, you know, I just kind of stumbled upon this, because you know, we've had in this um, last couple generations a real decline of people who go to church and self-identify, even though people will say, I believe in God, and I'm a Christian, or I'm a whatever it is, Catholic, um, people are really struggling with what that means with, return to, with respect to what happens after life and, and what, you know, what death means. So a lot of the patients we've had at the hospice through the year would ask at some point, what's, you know, I, you know I've been a bad person in this life and I've had a lot of issues. You know, what's, what do you think is going to happen? I, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a tough question. And what I, you know, I would finally, you know, I'd be only be able to come up with what I've only, you know, what I believe really, which, you know, whether you're, you believe in the immortality of your own soul or not isn't really a question to me anymore, but, you know, there is a, a certain amount of what, of survival of our corporeal being. I mean, you know, being a part of what's growing out here, being part of the air, I mean, you know, the old saying about, you know, any one of us could have molecules of Jesus in us, inside us or something like that, you know. And Walt Whitman, of course, uh, he said, why be afraid of the great merge? Which is what he called what happened. You're merging back out. And so I used to tell patients, I said, who were worried and agitated about this, I'd say, well, you know, wherever you were before this life, you're probably going back. If you were okay then, you're going to be okay afterwards too. And you know, and some people thought I was full of crap, but some people thought, <laughs> some people thought, okay, they hadn't really thought of it that way, you know, and that's something, that's one of the ways that I think about it, really, you know, but the real question then becomes in that regard of, you know, living your life and, you know, how are you going to um, feel about it at the end, unfinished business and all that kind of stuff. Irving Yalom, a, a psychiatrist at Stanford who's written a lot about this in his last book, which I commend to you quite a bit, was called Staring at the Sun. It's an examination by a confessed, avowed atheist of what life and death means, you know. And here's a very distinguished writer. And uh, 
you know, he and uh, Sherwin Newland, the great surgeon who's written, who wrote How We Die and got a Pulitzer about a dozen, 15 years ago, they've all come, they, they say, well, you know, if you do your best, you try to make amends, you don't have unfinished business, you know, you're going to be okay. A lot of it's about forgiveness, and you try to get through that. Uh, Robert Aitken Roshi, who was a great Buddhist teacher who just died uh, a few months ago uh, in Hawaii, um, he basically said, you know, there's a lot of sayings through the uh, years and through literature that when people die after, after they have died, you'll remember all the horrible things they did <laughs> to you or to others. And he said, I think it's the opposite, it's actually, is that in most cases, the bad stuff fades away. And what you remember is the essential goodness of people and the good things about them, even if you had a problematic experience with this person. Um, that memory is actually merciful in a sense, and that you'll, you, you know, if you've tried your best, that you know, your legacy will be a positive one in people's hearts and minds. Now, there are some you know, bastards out there that you know, it's good riddance, but I think, they're, I think they're in the very much the minority, really, for most of us. So in your own time, since everybody here is probably going to die at some point, I'm gonna give you a, this is where you get your money's worth from this, this talk. How many people have filled out an advanced directive of some kind? Pretty good. You know, I used to do this at medical meetings, doctors and everything, and, but I, what I used to do was, everybody close your eyes and then answer, so nobody would be embarrassed by the answer. And in this country, the people who have filled out um, durable power of attorney for healthcare, which is where you can designate somebody else to make your decisions for you, somebody you trust, hopefully, um, you know, when you're no longer able, and when it filled out of various kinds of medical advanced directives, living wills, um, it's generally, you know, of adults, it's generally 25, if you're lucky, 30% of people have done it. It was the same percentage among doctors. It used to shock me. But the same denial as anybody else, really. And these are people who are supposedly seeing this. And really, the first question when people come in for an ethics consult, we ask, do we have any advanced directives from this person? Do we have a and a surrogate who's been designated legally, and have they filled out any forms that say what kind of treatment they would want? It's the most important question. Most of the times, the answer is no. So, a couple of things. Well, the first thing is you ought to do it, you know. Um, there are all kinds of options. The California Medical Association actually has what is called an advanced healthcare directive kit. You can download it from their website for nothing, although, when I did it, I didn't really know this, it comes out in blueprint that can't be copied and it says sample on it. They sell them for five bucks, you know. It's probably worth it, though. And there are other options. The, one of the advantages of this one is when it go, ends up in the hospital and it ends up in your hands, then the doctors look and they go, oh, well, this looks good. It's from the, you know, it's from doctors, basically. So, I mean, because there are, there are options. But the one that I, and the durable power of attorney for healthcare, you can find that online easily too, where you designate people. Do that too if you have somebody you trust, because you never know. You're, they, you, you may not, you know, they're gonna, we're going to come looking for somebody, and you might get the wrong person. You want it to be somebody you trust there. And generally, it's somebody who spent time with you, because the problem, we, I used to call it the distance rule. The farther away the uh, person lived from the patient, the more likely they were going to say, do everything, keep them going, do surgery, do, you know, put all this, et cetera. 
people who are really there and know you and know your wishes and who have been near the hospital, they'll see what that really means in terms of, you know, a not a good quality of life. So it's somebody who you, you really care for. But the new one, and there's copies of this out there, although they won't work for the official purpose. Who has seen this pink form? The doctors have seen it. Um, <laughs> some of them. This is called Pulsed. It's relatively new. And it's Pulsed is P-O-L-S-T, Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Now, this is a medical document that goes into your medical chart. You have to fill it out with your doctor. Your doctor has to fill it out and sign it. And then this will follow you wherever your chart is. And this is where you're able to specify what kind of treatments artificially administration of nutrition, comfort measures, um, and it's this bright pink form. I didn't bring a whole bunch of these because it's being revised and actually the second version will be out, I think, next month, April or May. But there are black and white copies just so you can see with it. So if you do nothing else in just a practical sense from this, take one of those or you know just ask about it, remember what it is. Next time you go to your doctor, you don't have to make a special visit for this say, I'd like to fill out a post form. Now, some, I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, Michael Whitty or something is going to hate me now because there's going to be all these people coming in. But whoever you go to, um, most, it's trickling out into the medical world now that these are a good thing to have. And actually, ambulance drivers are asking for them now when they bring them into the hospital as well. It's called the bright pink form. And it's, um, it's made, it's, it has to be in this, this color, which has a funny name, you know, whatever, their fuchsia, whatever. But it, um, it has to be on this color. It goes into your chart so they can't miss it, right? It's going to be in there. So do that if you can. It will probably generate a discussion with your doctor that will be interesting and worthwhile, too, whatever you put on here. Some of them are very uncomfortable talking about this, just like everybody else, but some are getting better at it. And I will actually, you know, on one of these previous... Uh, Discussions, Susan, and that was Michael Whitty, right? They actually did a role play about these issues. You can listen to it on the New School site online and did a great job. I mean, did a very moving and informative role play discussion about how to have this discussion you know, with your doctor. It was from January or? Yeah, it's in there. It's one of the, just from a couple issues back. Um, So I think some of you, how many of you were here for the W.S. Merwin reading three weeks ago? Just a few. Well, we had this wonderful event here, courtesy of one of our board members, Eric, here, um, where the poet laureate of the United States came and read some of his poems and had a discussion. And I'd already picked one out. It was interesting. when I, The first time I was talking, thinking about talking here, I'd already picked out a poem of his that I really liked, and he actually read it that day. I don't know if Eric picked it for him or not, but it is called For the Anniversary of My Death by, by W.S. Merwin. He read it much better, I think, than I ever will, but I'm going to. So, For the Anniversary of My Death. Every year without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out, tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men. As today, riding after three days of rain, 
hearing the wren sing and the falling cease, and bowing, not knowing to what. And that was one even before it just hit home to me, bowing to whatever is here. And at this event, somebody asked him, might have been Erica during the discussion, um, it's decades, I think it's been quite a while since you wrote this, what are you bowing to? And he said, after all these years, I still have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, at least for this part, so you were supposed to remind me, back to that, (laughs) back to the case study about living your life. So sometime later, about these two patients that we uh, had, one from the hate clinic, one from the chairman of the board. And uh, these two guys ended up becoming coffee pals, hanging out, very different paths of life. Both of them died um, of their conditions. Um, And the chairman of the board left a long letter uh, to be read at his funeral, along with three checks all six figures. And this is a guy who, according to other people who know him, had never given away a penny. (laughs) Wealthy man. And he left a check to the hate clinic, say to take, targeted to taking care of underserved, uninsured people. He left a check to UC, say they should take care of more uninsured people. (laughs) And he left a check to the family of this guy's and his kids and his wife as well, to say, this guy, made the last six months, I think it was of six to eight months of my life, the best of my life, because we were, I finally found somebody I could talk to honestly about things, you know. And um, so the closing quote I have, I was, when I was a young geek and studying biology and uh, was obsessed with Darwinism and evolution and trying to figure out, uh, you know, the meaning of what all this was, one of my heroes in that was Aldous Huxley because he was a scientist, great novelist, obviously, a writer, just a polymath uh, learning. For, and towards the very end of his life, somebody asked him, can you put it down? This was some talks at UC Santa Barbara, my undergraduate uh, place where I live next door to his old house. He said, can you tell us what, you know, if you can crystallize, what have you learned? What's the meaning of life? You know, you've studied everything, you know, and you've written and you're accomplished and uh, taken acid and everything where nobody else had yet and all of that, you know. And he said, quote, it's a bit embarrassing to have been concerned with the human problem all one's life and find at the end that one has no more to offer by way of advice than try to be a little kinder. (laughs) So I'm going to stop there and you... Well, well, you're getting mics. See, I didn't really... I used to do talks. I'm a, kind of a freak for comics, you know. If you've seen the hearsays, I always have, you know, I try to put comics in there. We all do. But I, had so, I found some old ones looking through the files, and there's like, you know, my middle name is Lewis. So there's a tombstone. It says, Stephen Lewis, 1939 to 1999. Went from zero to 60 in no time. <laughs> <laughs> And here's, here's some guys marching up through the clouds to the pearly gates and the, the angels there going, hey, great death. <laughs> and here's one I like, Bizarro, a, guy, a woman's interviewing a physician here. Doctor, how do you respond to critics 
who say, with this new procedure, you are in effect playing God. And he says, I just strike them dead with a bolt of lightning. <laughs> and we'll do one more. I've got a bunch. But here's a guy, a doctor on the phone. He's saying, before we try assisted suicide, Mrs. Rose, let's give the aspirin a chance. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, wait, wait. This one's good, too. Okay. Here's a, here's a guy showing up at the pearly gates. I must be St. Peter there. And he's saying, Sorry I'm late, but they had me on life support for two weeks. <laughs> All right, that's enough. Okay. okay. Well, I have a, a collection of some practical and some personal questions for okay. you based on what you've said. And first, though, thank you. I think I, I know that originally as we talked about this, your theme is the evolution of death. And I think you've taken us through many, many of the both individual concerns and societal concerns that we have around death and around dying. Um, so a practical question. You had said that hospice care is often not brought in early enough. What are, and, and we hear this a lot in the work that we do, and what do you think are some of the reasons? I mean, I know Education plays a role, economics and the way it's reimbursed plays a role, our culture plays a role, denial plays a role. But what in your experience have you seen? Why do you think people don't bring hospice in earlier? Mm. Um, I think it's, mo well, one thing to say about that is that most of the time these are, the people who are coming to hospice are being discharged from a hospital mm -hmm. or some sort of care. So. That's important to know um, because what's going on there is fractured care where nobody is really stepping back and saying, what are we trying to accomplish with this patient who is having a real tough time not getting out of the ICU, not getting out of the hospital? Um, where are we trying to go with this where you've got maybe surgeons talking about doing some procedure where you may have an intensivist saying, well, let's you know try... Uh, different meds, et cetera. It may be a pneumonia thing if it's late where you're saying, well, let's put in some really aggressive antibiotic therapy. And nobody's really paying attention to where you're really trying to get with this and what the chances are. So the, the practical advice on that is you don't even have to, oh, those, that isn't necessarily an ethics question. It's a goals of care question, is you can ask for in the hospital what they should do and what, what, what I often do when I'm called on an ethics consult is say, has there been a care conference? And that is basically the whole team getting together for a quick, it could even, you know, it's like a 15 minute thing even, where the doctors, the nurses, a social worker, or the family will sit down in a room somewhere and say, what are we trying to do here and what are the real chances? And often what happens out of that, when you, if you get a frank discussion, is that you change the direction and people will say, well, we're not really going to get this patient out of the hospital back on their feet with a quality of life, conscious, whatever, and you can transfer, by then you're changing the goal to palliative, to making sure the person is comfortable in whatever time is left instead of trying to fix them. Mm. Do family members usually take part in that or is that yes. primarily the health professionals? Uh, it's both, okay. yeah. yeah. Now you want the family, if, if there's any possibility of having the, sur the designated surrogate who can make those decisions mm -hmm. and the family members, you really want them there. Mm -hmm. yeah. You also, another practical question when you talked about the pulsed form. Um, 
and you said this resides in your medical record. How do, and people often ask the question, if there's been some sort of medical emergency and say they're transported to an emergency room, um, how, how does this follow you? How does someone in the case of, say, an emergency but life-threatening situation uh, bring this to bear on their care? Well, you, like in, somebody shows up in an emergency room, the questions are always, where, you know, is the, can we find out who this person's phys previous physician, have they been to the hospital before? You have to find that out. And it's very difficult, often. I mean, they have people, so, they're social workers, they tend to be at major hospitals. This is their whole job, is trying to find Uncle Joe who lives in Cleveland and has this person ever expressed mm -hmm. if they'd want to be kept alive on life support and all that. It's a very tough job, but they're amazing at it. They're better than detectives or, you know, private private investigators, really, what they, who the people they come up with. But the problem often there, and this results in this duplication of care and starting over and doing uh, diagnostic tests that may have already been done, is that they can't find it. So that's part of what this, this is supposed to be a portable part of a medical record, but they still have to be able to find it. The thing that's, the, that's being phased in now is an electronic health record. And so in San Francisco, for example, they're trying to set up a system. It's very difficult, but it seems like it's going to happen within the next year or so where everybody, if you've been in a different hospital or even just the community clinics, they will have access to your medical record where you can find whether that document and other documents are in there. So that's going to be an, a real upside of an electronic health record if it gets in there. But otherwise, you're, in, you're, you're wound up with, that's why, you know, if you've got a wallet card, an ID, make sure you've got it on you. The other thing I should have mentioned, which is also a pink dot often, is like on these documents, decide whether you want to be an organ donor. Big deal. It's a big important thing. We're up over 100,000 a year now, people dying on organ waiting lists. And uh, it's just, it's a shame because most people say they would want to do it, but nobody fills it out and you can't take them without. Could they not shrink that down to a size you could put in your wallet? Well, this one's very small, but it's, um, could this be shrunken down was the question. You know, there are other, there are other wallet cards you can get. There's even some, I think, in this kit here too with other, you know, just says that you filled one out and where to find it. The other thing people do is say is Xerox it and stick it on your refrigerator. I don't know if you want it on your refrigerator, but somewhere. You know. <laughs> for the babysitter can see it. Um, actually, uh, uh, for people who carry cell phones, I know many people put the ICE, yeah. the ICE, in yeah, their cell phone. Yeah, there's new apps for everything. Yes, right? so but even go. just under the, the yeah. you know, contact of ICE in case of emergency where people put in there and health professionals know to look there for a contact person. Um, a, a couple of, of personal questions. One of the things that Michael talked about in the first or the second, I guess, of these conversations is that at the Cancer Health Program, we often ask people or during the, the evening that we hold on pain and suffering and death and dying two questions, and I'm going to ask them of you if you would be willing to, to go into some personal ground here, onto personal ground. Um, and there, what do you fear about the end of life? And what are your beliefs around the end of life? Mm. And um, you talked some about that and about the beliefs of others about near-death experiences, but with all of the work that you've done and with so many places where you've been faced with people dying, what, what has this brought you to yourself? Well, the first question about what I fear, I'm kind of in line with the great filmmaker and philosopher Woody Allen who said, 
I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be around when it happens. And so I'm, uh, I'm actually, you know, the, the, some of the, what I touched on with the pain relief um, issue uh, was what, is, what results in what's called opiophobia. You know, people are afraid to use it. And that, not just the doctors that I mentioned, but a lot of patients will say, I don't want to be an addict, I don't want to depend on that, I don't want to be, you know, fogged by it, and so forth. And all of that, you know, can be true, but at end of life, it's like uh, all bets are off. Why worry about being an addict, you know, um, when you're, you know, faced with weeks or months or whatever it is. Um, so I, f I do fear, um, I fear physical pain, it, untreatable, long-term physical pain. I mean, I think that's <laughs> kind of an obvious human one in a sense. But I'm also very, probably even more so, and this is true is what uh, the surveys and experience has shown, is what people fear most at the end in general is loss of control. And I'm the kind of guy who I think that if I can't walk anymore, because that's what I do a lot, um, you know, shoot me, you know. Um, and so what we find often with, with patients, and I think this would be true for myself, or at least I hope so, is there's what's called a moving line in the sand. So somebody like me who would say, if I'm no longer mobile, I don't want to live anymore, you find if with a, a good level of care is that, well, you can live with that. You'll adapt and you'll still find some reward in life. And then well, people will say, well, if I become, say, incontinent, then I don't want to live. But if supported and taken care of, if I become blind, which happened a lot with, in the early years with uh, HIV patients. But what we found is that people move that line back. There's something about the will to live inside that keeps you wanting to go on and able to find some satisfaction in life. So I would hope that would happen with me too because I'm so kind of, you know, independent, you know, in a way that, you know, I, I'd hope I still would rise above uh, that, that fear. Um, I don't know if I did, could say much more about what I already did about... Uh, what I think happens, I, you know, I'm not a, a religious person. Um, the term spiritual makes me uncomfortable, even though I think I know what it means, because I, I think it's overused and cheapened over time, in a sense. Um, that's just my perspective. But I also understand that, I, you know, what spiritual means can mean many different things to people. And to me, it's just, it's the, it's like, uh, you know, like Huxley said, people being kind to each other is a very spiritual thing. You know, it's a practice, and, and it's a way to leave an example, teaching by example, and to be able to do that and then be able to die and be, in my case, I would expect to be cremated and become part of the great merge. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is not, a, is not a frightening thing. It's not something that I fear. I'm worried about the process, like Woody Allen, you know, <laughs> being there when it's happening and it's painful. But if that part is taken care of and I'm able to take help out, once I'm there, I th I'm hoping I'll be okay. Meeting the devil could be a big, bad surprise. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Will you make sure and come back and let us know if we happen to still be here when that comes, comes around? Um, <laughs> Although somebody's famous poem said... Uh, what a, a message from hell was, and this was somebody from London, cold, foggy London, they have central heating here. <laughs> you know, that could pertain to Bellinas pretty yeah. well, too. Um, in your work as an ethicist, 
how have ethical concerns evolved over the last couple of decades? What have you seen as the change in what the ethical issues around death and dying are um, in these times compared to a couple of decades ago? Well, that's interesting because the modern field of medical ethics is not that old. Really dates from the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, if you look back, the, the earliest mention I could think of in I could find one time years ago of the right to die type issue in the medical literature was fascinating. It was in the JAMA again, Journal of the AMA, in the 1890s, and it was a pro and con debate, just like we have now, with not any real change in the issues about should it be a legal option, an ethical option, to people to choose their own death or not. And the, the guy who was in favor called it obstetrics of the soul. Mm. Which I thought was a fascinating That's comment a from, a from a century ago, over mm -hmm. a century ago. But the, the field in that, for a long time after that, was not very integrated or there weren't any journals just of medical ethics. Mm -hmm. There wasn't uh, an ethics department, which was founded, one of the leading ones that you see in the 70s. It was the first. Um, it was just something that was assumed if you took the Hippocratic Oath, that was your ethics. And the AMA was starting that journal where they, they I mean that, that document where they updated their codes on all sorts of things. But it became out of, in the 70s, it came out of a patient's, like many things in the 60s and 70s, it came out of basically a patient's rights movement that people felt that they were condescended to by doctors too much, um, didn't have, uh, weren't able to participate in the decisions that were going mm -hmm. on. And this movement came out to give people more choice and more information. And that is really what drove it. And a lot of it came out of court cases that went to the Supreme Court about what to do with people in coma, can we withdraw treatment, etc. So things that were related to end of life. And so that has evolved, the, de the debates go on and on uh, up to now. The one really interesting change, and this is something I've participated in, um, was where does that patient's rights perspective come up against other rights or obligations to not demand all the care you want. So the way the ethics were, were put forward, medical ethics codes, is that patients have rights to get whatever care is appropriate and, and so forth. But in a lot of these end-of-life debates and cases, you have less often the patient themselves, but more often their family, out of various reasons, guilt or other, demanding things that are no longer going to help them, really. It's called medical futility, okay. you know. Um, the F word, we call it, <laughs> because, it's, because it's very difficult to deal with to say no to people now, often. And hospitals, doctors are very afraid of being sued for, you've got a patient in an ICU and you can't do anything more, but the family is saying, we want you to keep her alive and try everything. We, heard, we read about a study online that's going to bring a new drug in and mm -hmm. that may be available soon and we want to do this, that, and the other, where people are saying, you know, the chances of this ever working are so minuscule that we're actually doing going against our ethical codes by providing more and more treatment. And so we actually published in the medical journal some years ago some guidelines for medical futility, or as we call it, non-beneficial treatment, and how to withdraw that against the will of the surrogate. Mm. And it's a very difficult and uncomfortable situation. It does happen, but so far, nobody has ever been sued for it because over time, you know, the patient does die 
and the family may have very bad feelings and so forth. And we did it once. The family, three of them were attorneys. You can believe me, we were scared. But over time, they come to realize, well, maybe that was the right thing. But in the heat of the moment, you're trying to decide. They're actually, in some ways, people are asking you to make the decision for them out of guilt. You don't want to do it yourself. You don't want to say, we have to let her go or him go, dad, mom, grandma, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in the heat of the moment, it can be very difficult knowing exactly what the right thing is to do. But there is a code in, in that AMA code that says no physician is obligated to provide treatment that they feel does not benefit the patient. Mm -hmm. So that's where it came up against this. That's, to me, it's just one thing that came up against this, um, the patient's right orientation of the whole modern uh, medical ethics field. You know, economics and ethics together can be quite an issue with people who, who are dying. You talked about earlier uh, what happens if someone wants to end their own life so that what they, they have can go on to their family or because they can't afford the kind of care anymore that they might hope to have or need to have. I read a study this week about a survey of oncologists who were asked, so in light of healthcare reform, where they're talking about studies of comparative efficacy, so how one treatment compares to another in terms of how long it will help someone stay alive. So these were oncologists who were asked, if you had to pay out of pocket for treatment for an advanced cancer, so you've already been treated once or maybe twice, then there's third, third line treatment which of the current treatments would you pay for? They picked one, if they had to pay for it out of pocket. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's an, that didn't surprise me, and yet it did. And so I wonder what your experience has been where economics and ethics either come together or collide in, in ways like that. So Because you were talking about something that can keep someone alive or not, you know, futile treatment. What if that treatment is also quite expensive? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things in the guidelines that we put together were that it, one of the things you had to do before you fully withdrew whatever interventions from the patient who would, you know, brought by all expectations, die soon after, was offer the family or the patient if they were lucid, usually not the case, but the family or the surrogate the option of having them transferred somebody someplace else. Um, but often that would mean, since a lot of places wouldn't want, they'd be taking, I mean, it could be considered in some other perspective as patient dumping, you're getting rid of somebody, you know. But uh, often it would require some considerable expense for them to get them into a long-term care home and so forth. And um, it changes the discussion sometimes, you know. And it's an uncomfortable fact, but it does. The ideal in the treatment room in the hospital is that you're not talking about money. You're trying to do what's right. But the reality is out there is that you know not everything is paid for, um, both covered for patients and you know reimbursed yeah, for that reason too. It's again not supposed to come up, but it does. And um, the difficult thing has been that that question. Now you didn't say how much the the treatment cost, but in oncology it's not cheap. Right probably most people couldn't afford it, you know, even the oncologist probably couldn't pay for it for very long. Yeah. But um, 
that question that's always interesting that you know doctors tend to hate, but that we ask it a lot anyway, is what would you do? What would you want to do? They tend to hem and haw and say, well, I don't know, but you know, in these kind of things at end of life, you often, you know, with a little bit of pushing, you'll get an honest answer about what they thought really the cost benefit of it is. If it's worth trying, given that it's got, say, a 5% chance of extending survival with any quality of life, would you do it? Eh, you know, you tend to get a lot of hemming and hawing. Well, I don't know, you know. What are the chances? So, you know, that does come up. And then again, that difficult question I mentioned earlier was when somebody says, I don't want all my money. I've, you know, I've saved up this much money in my life, and I don't want all of it going to uh, hospitals and insurance companies <laughs> or whatever in the uh, last year of my life. Yeah. It's, to me, it's a legitimate point of view that I think I would probably take too, you know, but very hard to do, you know. Now, it may be that those questions are becoming a little bit easier to ask and to answer because of, of dialogues, because of the work of medical ethicists and, and because of the work of hospice. I think increasingly the options um, exist. So switching gears just a little bit, because when we had a conversation preparing for today, um, one of the things that we talked about was grief. Yeah. And you mentioned and told me it was all right for me to bring this up. Um, that your mother died a few months ago. And I, I wonder if you would talk to us a little bit about your experiences, both professionally and personally, with, with grief, and what your training has prepared you for or not prepared you for. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you could say one thing is that you, nothing prepares you fully for real grief, for real loss. I mean, Merwin last a couple weeks ago, he said that all, the subject of all poetry is loss, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you could extend that to life in a sense, you know, it entails loss or, you know, Buddhism teaches that too, I suppose. But, you know, my, my mother's death was, was a beautiful one in terms of the way that, you know, people think of the ideal. She faded out blissfully with really almost no intervention and very little distress and it was very fortunate. My father's about five years ago was different. My parents lived full, long lives, and I, I do not have, and I didn't have unfinished business with them and so forth. So I don't, the grief was a big loss and a big difference. And somebody says you're never really an adult until both your parents die, you know. So um, now I'm a grown-up. Or, or, or an orphan or whatever you want to call it. But I, I didn't feel the grief there. But what, you know, I think you know a little bit too. Three years ago in 2008, I lost three people three months in a row, all younger than me. Um, my two best friends and the closest thing, I, person I had to, a daughter. Um, in freak medical and other accidents. And that's where I learned about grief, even though I've seen a lot about it. And, you know, I read this. This book came, um, you probably, some of you have heard of Joan Didion's book. Year of Magical Thinking, which got the National Book Award a few years ago. The fascinating thing about this to me was that, you know, that what she's talking about, the title, Magical Thinking, is you get into another, you get into another realm. Um, you start thinking all kinds of things that, you know, she thought she could bring them back by thinking about them, or she thought she was talking to them when, just out of the blue. And this is grief doing something to your entire psyche and your brain and, um, and your heart more than anything else. And she, um, she expressed a lot of it very well. Some of it I related to and some of it 
I, I didn't, but you know, I thought you know, there's a lot of other books coming out about this now too. I mean, that's another interesting thing. You talk about modern evolution of death. When the medical ethics movement started in the 70s, there was basically one book. There, were, there was another obscure one, but there was On Death and Dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Right now there's shelves. Yeah. You know, from all We've different. We've some of yeah, them right here. Shelves. I should be pointing this way, actually. <laughs> a, a bunch of these. Some of these, yeah, are mine. But um, yeah. yeah, so that that has been a change, the openness about it. But some people have said grief feels mostly like fear. You talk about that, about fear, because it strikes you at times where you're just not, you're just not ready for it to come up. And I had this experience, paralyzing, at times. And I consider myself a fairly uh, you know, my father's son, who was a scientist and a CEO and a tough guy, you know, his idea of being a parent was teach me how to shoot a gun, you know, that was, you know, and um, tough guy, you know, and so I, feel, I thought of myself that way, but I realized that there are just some things you just have to, you just got to live through, and um, it's interesting enough, one of the books I read after that, I brought today just out of the blue, is uh, Darkness Visible, a memoir of madness by William Styron. So she's talking about magical thinking. He's talking about madness. Now, what he, his madness in this case was depression, severe depression. But it's also a really good kind of diagnostic book because it tells you what to look out for, in a sense. Because I had moments and I had times where I felt like I was really at risk, you know, overwhelmed with why even you know bother when somebody a beautiful 20 year old who i you know have known since before birth even falls off a cliff out here and then the next two months my two best friends or two of my very best friends die from bizarre things i felt like i was in iraq you know and people were being taken down every day and a book, a book like this was actually very helpful in a sense because I could read it and say, okay, you know, if it gets to that point, I'm actually going to look for help. I was fortunate that it didn't. But other people around in my circle uh, of people who were also hit by these tragedies, um, also, you know, some of them did need help. Mm-hmm. The strange thing is most of us ended up getting new dogs. <laughs> and, 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 and it was not a, it was not a conscious decision, but it happened. There were, among these various people, there were four dogs, and it's, a, it's you know, I'm telling you, one person said, the only one friend of mine who was, whose, you know, daughter was the one who died, she said, the, one of the only things that helps me is to just go outside and run until I feel I'm going to throw up. And then I forget for a minute what I'm feeling, and I, you get the adrenaline and all that. Well, I didn't have to go to that extreme too much, but if you get a Big dog, you got to walk three or four hours a day, <laughs> which I do, and and you know, so there are all different things. But there, there's a tip right there, right? I mean, um, I hadn't had my own uh, dog since uh, childhood. I've had a lot of cats and so forth, um, you know, full time like that. But very therapeutic um, in that way. So you know. Um, the other thing is the famous five stages of grief that Kubler-Ross wrote about. Um, there's a lot of truth in there, denial and ex- from denial to acceptance. But what I found was is that you basically go through those every day, and then you start over again the next day, mm-hmm. rather than going through them to the end. And over time, they get longer, and you start to realize, okay, you know, there is acceptance of this. There may, you know, I'm never expecting to find a reason 
to think that, you know, God or the Spirit or whatever took these people for a good reason. I think they're horrible tragedies, and I can't come up with any real reason for that. But life is risk. You're born, and then, you know, you're at risk for the rest of your life of something happening. Mm -hmm. And for some time at the hospice, I used to, <laughs> this was being kind of silly, but the death certificates I used to fill out, they used to want to know cause of death on there, and I used to write birth. It lasted about a year till I got busted, till people started, started saying, and I sh of all people I should have known, because they're trying to track cause of death. I mean, you need data on these, you know. They said, uh-uh, you can't do that. You know, it's not, a, it's not a legitimate diagnosis that we can code for. But I figured it was a Buddhist hospice, you know. I mean. I it makes perfect sense to me for what it's worth. Well, let's, let's ask if people have some questions or comments that they'd like to share. On the, the question of uh, very expensive uh, procedures late in life, and mm -hmm. it seems to me that, that those decisions should shouldn't be in the hands of patients or family members necessarily, but rather in the hands of some sort of national system like in the uh, National Health Service in Britain. There are certain criteria for who can get what sort of treatment at what stage based on their symptoms and other factors. And that seems the only rational, rational way to approach that sort of issue. And I was wondering what your experience is, is in terms of progress toward that sort of rationalized uh, system of determination of who's eligible for transplants or experimental drugs or et cetera. Yeah, do you repeat them or should I? Yeah, well, basically the question is whether or not um, there should be some sort of national or other authority that helps us to make the decisions about who should get what procedures or treatments at what time in their life transplants and, and others and what progress may have been made towards the end of a rational system for making decisions as opposed to leaving it in the hands of patients and families. Well, look at the look at the word here. You know, which you used, which is rational, which I agree with. But that, you know, what we're talking about is rationing, yeah. right? Yeah. When you come into a limited amount of resources, which there always is. Um, so the question, you know, there these decisions on who will pay for what and what's allowed, they're made by somebody anyway, right? And too often, it's made by an insurance company or something like that. Who will pay for it? And that's what part of what we're trying to get away from. It's very difficult. You know, you, you, you develop a new intervention, whether it's a surgical procedure through many trial and error or a new medication through the pharmaceuticals, and it has to go through approval at the federal level, et cetera. And the price is then set by some arbitrary, uh, seemingly arbitrary decision, you know, usually by whoever developed it. it tends to be expensive in a capitalist system. Um, there have been efforts. The one interesting thing that was done about 15 years ago, Oregon tried to set up a rationing system, as it were, with their uh, Medicaid or our Medi-Cal system. And they developed a list of 480-something, I think it was, diagnoses that they'd pay for and then cut off. Here's what we'll pay for, and up to this point, we're not going to do a liver transplant on the, on the public dime because we can't afford it. So what happened? The first week, a young child, a couple years old, showed up at UCSF from Oregon needing a transplant. And 
there you are at UCSF where they can do it and they're good and they have a budget built in or they did for charity care. This case, which they couldn't turn away, this lovely young kid, ate up the entire year's charity uh, budget. Saved a life, kids survived, but they found a way to travel. So, you know, on a state level, it's not going to work. Um, we come up to the same issues of, you know, how much money is really there. Um, there is some of this, again, built into the new health care reform uh, act. Whether it's going to be sustainable financially, I don't know. But the, you know, the various specialty associations and interdisciplinary groups, and including the Institute of Medicine, have come up with various guidelines at times over what is most uh, rational, <laughs> in a sense. But, boy, I've got a long way to go on that. You know, I mean, I don't really have the answer, but I think we creep towards it out of necessity because the money won't be there. You know, Medicare, which is what almost, you know, what all of us are going to be counting on, it's a commons, in a sense. You know, everybody can draw into it, yeah. but if everybody does, the whole thing could collapse. And the projections are, you know, it's going to be around for a while, but unless things change, uh, some really tough choices are going to have to be made. And, you know, you can call that death panels or you can call it ethics committees, but, you know, uh, if it's done in the right way, maybe it'll be defensible. But, you know, you've, you've National Health Service and the Canadian system as well, they're struggling with this now more all the time. You know, you can cut out, you know, with single payer, for example, you can cut out a lot of the administrative costs and you can cut out some of the insurance industry costs and everything. But even the best projections don't uh, completely preclude these kind of rat tough decisions having to be made eventually and in a lot of our lifetimes. Can I ask a follow-up on that? Yes, oh, sure. Sorry to interrupt, but That's uh, right. so this is kind of my question as well. So in thinking you had mentioned, Steve, about the inaffordability of care for an aging population, and also knowing that certain juvenile diseases are getting more and more expensive because of lifestyle, et cetera. And so I'm just sort of wondering, you know, amongst estheticians, is there an active discussion or discussion at all about sort of, you know, the value of preventive care versus this sort of sexy, late, you know, high um, tech care? And it seems to me that that that, that's where the dime is going to be ultimately, but that's going to be really hard to shift people from yeah. sort of the cowboy tech care to the sort of boring, you know, nutrition, exercise, right. young person's care. Yeah, well, so you I'm just going to repeat yeah, the question for those in the back. So the question is about um, basically preventive care versus some high-tech treatment and where where is the continuum there and might we be shifting or how might we shift towards the front-end preventive efforts, um, can, which is perhaps drier and a little bit more humanly difficult than the um, somewhat more interesting and sexy treatments that are, are fascinating. Which, I mean, the question touches on a lot of things. I mean, there's terror out there among people who really look at where the trends are in terms of yeah. childhood obesity in this country and what that will mean in terms of health conditions and costs related in the future. And then you couple that with the uh, aging of the population with a doubling of the Medicare eligible population in the next, you know, in 20 years, you know. Where is all this going to come from? And so the, uh, the Health Care Reform Act has a lot of focus on prevention, actually, on increasing and, what, you know, beyond just the public education and all that, but just what you're saying, increasing reimbursement for it so people can actually get paid for talking about it, just like they did by 
trying to, and they, you know, Obama chickened out on this one in particular, but on trying to reimburse doctors for talking about end-of-life care, too. That was a bill that was put in, was, and they waffled back and forth, and right now it's out again because of political, purely political reasons. But, you know, I think this is part of what's coming through with Michelle Obama stuff, is trying to do something to interrupt these trends that are looking really bad, you know, and you don't have to go far away from, like, this community to see, you know, the prevalence of obesity among kids, let alone adults. And that brings a tremendous amount of, of costs and health outcomes uh, much sooner than they would be later in life. So uh, the, the problem is, you know, I mean, these are, it's called cognitive services versus procedural. And, you know, one's where you actually sit down and talk to a, a patient, uh, and those are poorly reimbursed. Whereas doing some kind of surgical procedure or a diagnostic, you know, a radiologist or something, those are well paid. And that came out of, you know, to, you know, for all the wonderful things Medicare did starting in 1965. And uh, our chairman of our collaborative here, Phil Lee, was a part of this, you know, who's been a Commonweal leader for, you know, since the start. It really allowed when something new came in, a procedure, something expensive, they set the cost and that's what Medicare reimbursed. And uh, those are no longer experimental, but they're still paid at these high levels often. Now, that's being ratcheted down, but it's a real struggle and a real fight. And you actually end up pitting medical specialties against each other. You know, an ophthalmologist who's doing a particular procedure is used to getting paid a lot for here versus somebody who's doing preventive. And, you know, pediatricians and family practice are the lowest paid specialties, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, big, and it may be that preventive... What we do to promote prevention is somewhat resides outside of the medical care system. Well, yes. Because the medical care system yeah. in this country tends to be more of a medical care system than a health care system. Mm -hmm. And so they, they may end up residing in different places, just as mm -hmm. public health often resides so differently and is treated so differently um, than medical care is. Yeah, called the poor step, public health is the poor <laughs> stepchild of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Eric, did you have a question? Well, I was just going to add uh, to that the books, the uh, William Styron and the John Didion. There's uh, Joyce Carol Oates has yeah. just written an amazing book about the loss of her husband. Some people who are interested in you know, Yeah, another book about grief. He's, Eric's mentioning Joyce Carol Oates' new book about losing her husband. And yeah, there was an article in the New York Times in the last week, I think, about that. There was a conversation between her and another young author whose name I don't remember, who's in her 30s, who lost her mother. Um, just yes. Uh, it seems to me that at the beginning of life, uh, when life begins, it, 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 there's not doesn't seem to be a universal consensus on that. And I'm wondering if, the, if for end of life in California, if there's some kind of understanding. I know Scientific American about a year or so ago had it, to me a really interesting article about. I think it was something like 13 different levels uh, that. Uh, uh, they can identify when someone's in a coma. Mm. And I I'm wondering, uh, what is the definition of death exactly? <laughs> Did everyone hear that? Yeah. Okay. What no, is you the definition of death? Yeah. Well, you're right. The, the, uh, there's a, now a vast literature trying to delineate and arguing about different forms of brain death, coma, <coughs> And uh, it's fascinating stuff. It becomes very important when you're talking about some issues like uh, harvesting organs. Um, 
things like that. I have always found, and this is just me, I've always found that when it comes to actual death, you know it when you see it. <laughs> and, you know, those, the questions about the various uh, points where you're getting closer to it, you say brain stem death, etc., you know, they will, they become important and most, most commonly become confronted when you are in an ICU and you've got somebody on life support of various kinds and you are keeping them breathing with a ventilator and there is still some circulation going on perhaps because the heart's still pumping but you're getting basically no measurable uh, response and no activity in the brain. Um, and so if there's a great contention there about whether this person can be withdrawn from life support, you might have to get into that and sometimes in these ethics consults and call a neurologist in and so forth. Most of the time though, that's secondary to the real basic issue of it's clear regardless of what step they're on there that they're not coming back. And when you get into a point where somebody is on multiple life support, the longer they are, it, it, their, their percentage chance of, you know, statistically of coming back declines very fast with time. So if you've got somebody who's in, doesn't have a measurable brain activity and has been on life support for a week, you're talking about what goes into the realm of miracles, right? And so, you know, those, are, those can be important, but I find they don't often really come up in these kind of decisions. Well, if I could just follow up. Yeah. Um, that, that seems fine from the point of view of the ethicist or whoever has to make the decision, but from the point of view of the person who's dead or dying, it could be really important if they're, you know, uh, if they're dead or not dead. Well, so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that's true. But usually beyond that point of whether the person is is has any consciousness left, um, you know, I mean, you can speculate about whether somebody who has no brainstem activity and has been in a coma has some consciousness left. Um, we have no way of knowing that, and we have no way of bringing them back, short of a miracle. Right, but there are cultures where they don't consider the person really dead for three days. Yes. And I've seen people that are, have been declared dead that, you know, there's, there's right. still a pulse. So the question becomes then, is that person best served in that state by being kept on all these, this equipment and in an intensive care unit in a hospital, or should they be allowed to be taken to wherever is best to honor that particular belief? Uh, a man that Michael and I know who became an international health expert, uh, policy expert based in Europe. He told me uh, years ago that um, the big difference why Europe's healthcare costs so much less or half as much as ours is because they do two things really differently. Malpractice, they don't have uh, money related to malpractice suits. They just lose the license so then the doctor's insurance doesn't have to be as big. And they also do different things with um, heroics on the preemies and end of, the li end of life. Right. And, um, but when, so I just wanted to make that comment in terms of we're talking money here. That's, uh, I think, a relevant thing to know. But when you mentioned prevention, I, it just reminds me how upset I get about corporations, uh, the way we're talking about how healthcare is breaking our budget, but we never talk about how corporations are brainwashing and poisoning people with the way they, you know, push different foods on kids, sugar, and all that, and 
So I think a lot of it is political, that, that America just isn't, um, like we should really have a, a new uh, ministry of health that it takes into account all the different factors, including corporations, not just, you know, a, an approach that's so, so kind of fragmented, ideally, <laughs> which America isn't. No argument for me. But then they call, people call us socialists, though, you know, yeah, for that. Exactly. <laughs> For even saying such a thing. I mean, what's happening, you know, I was at, last Friday, I was at an all-day meeting, it's an annual thing at UC about tobacco issues and policy around the world. It's something I've been involved in for years. And, uh, you know, it's just shocking what, you know, since we put on all these restrictions on the tobacco industries here, they're just doing it all overseas more because the money's there. I mean, and it was just, uh, you know, big posters of the Virgin Mary holding out a tray of cigarettes. I mean, it's just shameless. It's just amazing, you know. But, you know, I mean, these are the struggles of the world. Um, the other, one of the interesting things that Merwin said here, too, was uh, something, I'm paraphrasing, I'm no longer surprised at the evil men do, but I'm surprised that it doesn't bother them. <laughs> so then the point is it's not just a health issue and a money issue, it's a political issue and a consciousness yes. issue and where people's heads are at because if people could yeah. see the interconnections, there'd be a really different approach to the whole thing and that's part of the problem in America, I think, more than Europe. Well, you know, you mentioned, the, you mentioned the malpractice thing and it's, it's very interesting, Diana, because we do have tort reform in various states. We have it here in California, which limits the amount of liability. And the, it ends up that the insurance that doctors have to get can be one-fifth, one-tenth what it is in other states. But on the other hand, you have the patient's rights. If somebody really is harmed, they're saying, I'm, I should be able to get more than $200,000, which is $250,000, which is the cap in this state. So you're, it's a balance there. It's tough, you know. It does save money, you know. But again, you know, somewhere on the order of, depending on who you ask, a third of our entire health budget is spent in the last year of people's life, and often, in retrospect, for things that didn't help them, you know. Cartoon. Here's, here's a woman in her hospital bed, and Rambo has come in with his machine gun and his whole thing, and she's got her hand up. She says, no thanks. If my condition becomes irreversible, I do not wish to be kept alive through heroic measures. <laughs> so that's doctor as Rambo. I, I noticed you, you haven't mentioned Alzheimer's mm. and, and the, the, the yeah. epidemic and, and the, the very, very thorny ethical issues around that. Mm -hmm. Hospice does not like to take people with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Excuse me? Hospice does not like to take people with Alzheimer's. It's, it's a very complicated situation. So I'd like to hear what you think. Okay, I'll just repeat the question quickly. It's about Alzheimer's and the thorny issues surrounding the care of someone with Alzheimer's and why hospice often does not like to take someone who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you're right. I mean, the thing that I should have mentioned was not even just specifically Alzheimer's, but just dementia. Yeah. Um, what, what is used to be lumped into the entire thing of senile dementia, you know. And Alzheimer's is an interesting development because what you're looking for there is a physical diagnosis for dementia. And Alzheimer's is a very real condition in a syndrome, but it's also what a lot of people call a wastebastic diagnosis, is that people will be put in it and you can really only tell afterwards upon autopsy if the person has it, had that. But putting that aside, with severe dementia, you open up a whole nother realm of need for care and services. Um, 
both of my parents became somewhat demented towards the end of their life. We were very fortunate, though, in able to, being able to keep them, um, at least with my mother at home the whole time and with my father with some assistance. But you're right, we're going to see, along with this aging population, a real uh, concomitant rise in dementia and need for care for that. We don't have good treatment. There are some meds that help a lot of people, as I think you probably know, but they don't help a lot of people too. They can retard the development of it, bring back a certain amount of you know, lucidity sometimes, but you know, it's kind of, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, it's huge. It does make it more expensive. I can, you know, that's what you say, more, more expensive and more complicated to care for people. Um, it also, in the ethical realm of end of life, this has been a real thorny part about the right to die stuff. You know, there have been in Holland, which was the first, the Netherlands, the first place to legalize uh, physician aid in dying, there were cases that pushed the limits where family members uh, requested and said, you know, probably, on, you know, honestly so, if mom, dad, whoever, uh, knew they were in this condition, they would never want to be alive. Which, you know, if you take a poll of most people, almost everybody yeah. says that, right? But the problem is, often, is that the kind of creeping onset of dementia comes along to the point where you're no longer in control and you don't know it anymore. And so if you look, go back to the infamous Jack Kevorkian, his first case was a woman named Janet Adkins, and she had an early Alzheimer's diagnosis. She was still completely lucid, and she took a preemptive strike. You know, she called him up, had, her, had him help her die, even though she was, you know, still fine. And that made a lot of people extremely uncomfortable. On the other hand, there's something understandable about that, too. And so when people who are really afraid of that, you talk about loss of control, there's your ultimate loss of control. You yeah. maybe still have your body, but your mind isn't there, you know. Um, the interesting thing, I don't know how to say this, really, but the interesting thing is what a lot of people have found is that reassuring somebody as their caregiver, their physician, that you will be there for them when they want you to, to end their life, very often, maybe more often than not, extends their life because they feel reassured. Mm -hmm. and they're not going to suffer. So you could say, you could make the argument on a kind of rational basis that you extend life by giving people the right to end it. There's an irony there somewhere, but then when you get into a point where you have somebody who's too demented to do it themselves, what do you do? Now I can tell you that it happens a lot. Families, lovers, make partners make, make packs and do this, uh, but never an easy choice or answer. Let's see, we, one last question I think we have time for. I'll go I just to have that. to come. I'm a hospice and palliative care physician, and so uh -huh. to hear the comment that hospice doesn't like to take dementia is just simply not true. Yeah. There may be the individual hospices. Hospice is a Medicare benefit. There are strict guidelines on what qualifies a patient to be hospice eligible for all diagnoses, dementia included, as well as a diagnosis called debility. When you can't find a diagnosis that you can say this is why, one organ is failing or one system is failing, this is why they're dying. What happens is Medicare has mandates that we as hospice physicians have to recertify a person every three months for the first six months a person is on hospice and every two months thereafter, if they're on Medi-Cal or Medicaid, it's every one month, 
to prove that they're still dying. Mm -hmm. I have to do that retrospectively, thinking prospectively. Mm -hmm. This is, yes, I know they're still dying. Okay, I don't have that crystal ball. I don't know of any doctor that does. I don't know of anyone at Medicare who does, but that's their expectation. They have now just heightened that. So when you look at what the average daily census of how long someone is on hospice in this country at two weeks, and yet we're being pressured now to discharge, 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 because I can't prove they're dying. And dementia is the hardest to prove. It is not a stepwise, here we go. There are, there are hints, there are clues. But as compared to any other diagnosis, it is the hardest to demonstrate and give black and white facts. So we're sitting here saying they're eating 10% less. They've lost the ability to swallow regular diet. They're not eating solid, you know, they're now on soft mechanical diet. As compared to someone with heart failure, they can no longer breathe without four liters of oxygen at rest. Very easy to get tangible. But when you can do labs on renal failure, their kidney function is now completely gone and they're no longer going to have dialysis. Fine, these are all black and white things, but dementia is very hard. And so now you have Medicare saying, I have to give documentation or they are going to be discharged or the hospice will no longer be reimbursed. So the hospice will assume the cost for themselves, which they already do anyway. Whatever Medicare reimburses, it costs us a lot more to deliver all that care at $140 a day reimbursement. So if there's anything to be done, it's to go back to Medicare and say, look, until it's really a problem where we're actually approaching people living an average daily census of six months on hospice, why are you breathing down our necks when they're only living two weeks? Mm -hmm. But the I pressure is to discharge, and it's mostly the patients with dementia that bear the burden. Can, can I just make a correction? I was not criticizing hospice. I have a husband with Alzheimer's, and I'm, I'm criticizing Medicare. I mean, that's 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 it's not hospice. It's not the problem. So I understand, I appreciate but you. I appreciate given all the myths correction. around hospice and how hard it is to get people into it. Yeah. I, yeah. I just. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for for clarifying that. I think that helps a lot of us understand and, and a little more clearly, I think what you were saying, too. what you didn't say, which is, you know, what, just so people know, is, you know, somebody has to certify that death is expected in six months, right. and people then, particularly dementia patients, will bounce in and out with very difficult transitions and, and struggles to get them into the right services mm -hmm. because they haven't died fast enough, you know. Uh, so that's, I think that's what you're referring to. Okay. So I think we're, we're about to, it's 4 o'clock, just about to come oh, wow. to a close. Michael, did you want to make any closing remarks? Just to thank you all for coming and to um, thank Steve Heilig, who's such a beloved member of the Bolinas community and West Marin and the Commonwealth community, and Susan Braun, our executive director, and to say that on Wednesday, March 16th, we have a, a great conversation from 3 to 5 with Sarah Hobson on working with women in Sub-Saharan Africa. Sarah is a West Marin resident, she's a writer, documentary filmmaker, and she's the director of a wonderful foundation called the New Field Foundation, which focuses on very skillful work with low-income farming women in Sub-Saharan Africa. She's going to be really interesting. She has written a book called Through Iran in Disguise. And before she ran the New World Foundation, she ran an extraordinary organization in San Francisco called IDEX, which does development work in, uh, in the uh, developing world. So Wednesday, March 16th, 3 to 5, Sarah Hobson. And just thank you all for coming. And Susan, you're Thank you.